You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined uh, by Sexy Irish Sean, who is back and as sexy and Irish as ever. Richard is gone. He's standing in the line for San Diego Comic Con probably all day today, so he won't be having any fun at all. Hope you bought sun cream. We're joined by a guest today who's actually been on the podcast once before, but I'm really excited to have him back. It's Ben Levy from Strongbox Games. He has a Kickstarter that's currently live right now called Mantle of the Keeper, of which I am a backer and uh, really excited for the game personally. Ben, welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Sean, welcome back. I heard you had a baby. Yes, it's been a wild three weeks or so. so oh yeah. Well, congrats. Now, That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, and and we're so that everybody knows we're doing our podcast kind of out of order because this is like the first podcast Sean has recorded with us in a little while. Though you may not recognize it, we're we're going to do some out of order podcasting, and so I'll be like next week. You know, oh Sean is off having a baby or whatever, and. Um, or his wife. And so it should be, it should be funny, but maybe I have a time uh, machine. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. That'd make it for interesting twist. We did a podcast related to what we called the four and a half possible outcomes of a Kickstarter. These related uh, ranged from, you know, abject failure to, uh, you know, catastrophic success and everything in between. And Ben and his uh, partner, Zach, are uh, running this campaign for Mantle of the Keeper uh, on Kickstarter right now. And it's in a very interesting position that I think would be of great value to a lot of people listening to this podcast. They're in the position where they're likely to fund and they have to hustle in order to make it happen. So currently at the time of this podcast, they're at about 85% funded and um, working to get over the hump. It's really you know kind of uh, you know a lot a lot of our clients will fund quickly and we'll talk about you know how are you leveraging your extreme popularity right now and whatever but that's that type of conversation is not quite as useful as one where there's a little struggle involved and the requirement to hustle in order to actually see your dream come to fruition so I'm really excited to talk to Ben about this. And in addition to that, you know, Ben has a design partner work, you know, he works with, uh, Zach, uh, Roving who, you know, I guess they, they, they work together on mantle of the keeper and we never really talked about working with a partner. And so really eager to kind of dive into it. Somebody want to do the nerd news. Oh, I couldn't do that for Rick. No, no way. <laughs> I could just well, cut it from another episode to stick it in. <laughs> yeah, there yeah. you go. And now it's time for Nerd News. The news is that Nathan Fillion, who um, plays, you know, I mean, Firefly. He plays in Firefly, he plays in Castle, he plays in a lot of really fun. A lot of shows that, that my father-in-law likes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so he is like a mainstay at every San Diego Comic Con. And when I used to go every year, he would always be with the cast of Firefly or Castle or both um, signing autographs. And he would always give talks and other things like that. 
and he had a talk scheduled for this comic con and it ended up that due to his work schedule, he couldn't be there in person. And so it was a video of him talking, but nobody knew that until the presentation started and somebody walked up on stage and was like, by the way, he can't be here today. I know you all waited four hours to get in here, but um, you get a video and everyone was so mad. So there's your nerd news. Rick was yeah. in the room and he was mad. <laughs> I actually have a little bit of nerd news. So I, they've been talking about this for a while, but I think today or last night they released the trailer for Dungeons and Dragons, the movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, the visual effects looked awesome. I just I feel like they were very brave to dive into the subject because there's going to be so many hardcore fans that are going to be the biggest voice of pro or anti this movie. So I'll tell you what, Chris Pine could play in anything and I would watch it probably. Angel Studios was interviewed by the Babylon Bee and they were talking about their lawsuit they had with Disney. So they started as an ad agency, turned into a studio and then turned into like a crowdfunding platform. So it's very interesting. They're they're like a studio crowdfunding platform. So it's not like a creator can just create a product. It's more like they're a film studio. So someone would come and pitch an idea and then they would then crowdfund it um, mm-hmm. yeah. their, through their audience. Yeah, they're doing, um, they basically take book series that are very popular and turn those into, you know, animated, you know, series or movies. And um, like the Wing Feather Saga, they've done that. Are yeah, they doing I, just, for the saga? I just saw an ad for that on Facebook, actually. Like they're doing yeah, a they, second season or something? Yeah, so they raise, you know, like $5 million for Wingfeather. They're also partnered with The Chosen, which is the largest crowdfunded project ever. It's raised like well over $30 million or wow. something like that through crowdfunding. And they should definitely make a film, though, of their lawsuit with Disney, like a like a law <laughs> film. It's just so interesting of like the things they had to do to sort of circumnavigate this entourage of legal battles from the biggest you know company in the world because th- what they were saying is that they, they created the streaming service where you could filter non-family friendly content and they said when they did that they basically became a competitor with disney mm-hmm. now they're competing with family friendly content so disney essentially tried to get rid of one of their competitors by suing them to oblivion they did it five times actually that like i weirdly enough i found when it was called vid angel that's what that's where I was introduced to them. And mm. it was when Game of Thrones season one was out. I, I saw some sort of it, maybe it was a Facebook ad. Maybe it was like a commercial of some kind. But it said, would you like to watch Game of Thrones, but don't want to see the nudity? You can do that on VidAngel. And like you, you just go to VidAngel, you get an account, you sign in to your Netflix, your, you know, HBO Max, whatever. And you can actually uncheck or, you know, you go to like an episode and it'll have, you know, blasphemy, nudity, violence, and other, you know, idolatry or whatever. Right. And you can see the various elements of nudity. What I found really funny was the first episode or first few episodes of Game of Thrones. I cut out nudity and it, it, it removed over 10 minutes of footage um, from some of the episodes. It's crazy. It's like two to three minutes from the first episode. Like five minutes from another one, 10 minutes from another. It's like, oh my goodness. Yeah. But that, um, I feel like that would be there's like three minutes of story problem. in there. Yeah. 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 So, so um, but a lot of people use that for things like Game of Thrones. And so, hmm. what before this is before Disney Plus came out. So, what happened is they, you know, would do any show on Netflix, any, you know, any popular show, they had, you know, this, this capability. And Disney 
shows, any Disney brand, I forget what all their brands were, you know, they've got like Pixar and other, other, like a touchstone, I think. Mm. Um, so things like true lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger, if you wanted to cut out, uh, him saying his one F word or something like that, you could do it. And so Disney, um, sued them into oblivion. They shut down, they reopened and, Disney sued him again. And this happened five times. Wow. And finally they, on the fifth time they made it so that basically any Disney show you could not censor or, you, you know, they, their stuff wouldn't work for any Disney related show. Condole to them. Yeah. Mm. And I still think they failed because they like their user base dwindled a lot. Mm. And so they just, I don't know, maybe it wasn't profitable or something. In the podcast, they said Disney spent 30 million trying to bring him down. And they were paying their lawyers. They had the top lawyers in the country, and they were paying the lawyers. Eight, I think it was eighteen thousand an hour. Whoa, <laughs> it's just man. nuts! The amount of money in in this. Uh, so yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's a very interesting tale of a, a studio that sort of survived a, an attack of the biggest corporation in the world, and then has a successful crowdfunding platform. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah, we definitely need to get those guys on. I bet they'll get sued for something they say on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> So Ben, you uh, co-designed, co-authored Mantle of the Keeper with Zach, and maybe you could talk about some of the challenges and benefits that go with co-authoring. You might have some people who are, are interested in creating a game and maybe they think, hey, should I rope someone in to help me with this? Is that a good or bad idea? Maybe just share your experience with co-designing, co-creating a game. So yeah, Zach and I started this back uh, two years ago, but we've known each other a lot longer than that. We've known each other since the second grade. So about 16 years of friendship. So we, we've kind of been through a thick and thin with each other, um, which helps. But yeah, in the, in the respect of designing and co-designing a game and co-owning and running a business, um, there have been a little bit of both where it's benefits and struggles. And so I'll start with the good stuff. The, <laughs> the cool thing about having a co-designer and co-business owner is you spread out the workload. So my training and schooling and profession has to do with design and like graphics um, programs like Photoshop and InDesign. And so that's kind of where my mind is at is the visual aspects of things. And, and that um, Zach has not had that training. He's, he's actually a wound care nurse. And so his specialty is more in the um, technical parts of the games and um, actually story building and things like that. And then he also, part of his job is administration which works beautifully because he gets to help uh, maintain the numbers and have the contacts um, with manufacturing, getting quotes. So really the biggest benefit up front has have, it has to be being able to focus on a particular grouping of tasks for the game design and that whole process, rather than having to do something um, that people who do this solo, where they have to account for every single thing themselves. That's huge time spent uh, that is saved because we get to divide and conquer. Some other stuff I think that not not many people would think about that's a benefit would be kind of the morale boost. Um, you have someone that you're accountable for and um, you know making sure you get your part done, making sure that you know no matter what happens with a play test or let, let's say your Kickstarter goes live like ours and we didn't fund in the first 48 like we were projecting, then um, you know someone's there to talk to that's in the thick of it with you that can actually help you know be like hey you know what here's a different perspective let's both do this together kind of a thing and so I think that's been a huge godsend uh, working with Zach 
is is really the time saving and and the kind of shit chat back and forth of being able to lift each other up and uh, support each other. But there's some things that can be, um, you know, a, a difficult, uh, difficult process when it comes to the game design. I really think that's with any, you know, friendship relationship or, you know, co-business uh, partners is at some point we're going to have different ideas of how something should happen, whether that's how a character looks in the game, maybe their ultimate move or, Hey, I think we should do this t-shirt design. Well, I think we should do this t-shirt design that happens. And that's part of the beautiful uh, aspect of working with someone is you have more than just your own perspective. So you're not always in, in this echo chamber of, yeah, I I'm right the whole time. <laughs> so uh, being able to do that, it kind of tests our ideas and our theories of like, okay, I'm interested. Tell me why you think this. And usually it just goes into a conversation, but it can, you know, be a struggle sometimes. And what about playtesting? I imagine playtesting would have been a bit easier when you have two of you, you've got like a dueling game or has the yes. ca capacity to be a dueling game. So mm -hmm. did that, was, was that a distinct advantage having uh, basically someone to be like a permanent play tester? Absolutely. Yeah. So Zach was the guy who championed getting it on tabletop simulator and um, which is really helpful for us because I'm in North Texas and he is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so for the majority of our time um, working on Mantle the Keeper, We've been in two completely different states. We've met up a couple of times in person to work on stuff, but playtesting with him is really how a majority of the game um, got its bones. Um, and then when we started taking out to the public, we still use Tabletop Simulator sometimes in person, but um, doing that was really helpful because, you know, my wife uh, and his wife both love and, and love and enjoy Mantle the Keeper. But, you know, they don't want to be playing it every single day. So having another guy there to help was massive. Cool. Yeah, I was talking with um, my wife uh, today. Actually, we were out, you know, on a, a walk slash run. And I was talking to her about, you know, I, I just don't understand how some of these people can develop games so quickly. It took me a long time to develop Deliverance. And granted, it's a very large game. And I, at the time, wasn't really a game designer when I started this journey six years ago. I could probably shave at least two, maybe maybe more years off, but, you know, just with the, the experience. Mm -hmm. But, oh my goodness, there is so much to do. And even now, it's like, man, there's just a lot to do. My wife, first thing she said was, yeah, the, a lot of people design together. She also said a lot of people get divorces from their spouses. I was like, yeah, probably right about that. It's just so much time you have to dedicate. Yeah. I'm sure that a lot of people prioritize poorly or it just takes a long time, you know? And I, so I find a design partner or, you know, if you're a publisher starting with someone else's design where they did a lot of the legwork, you know, that's, you know, one of the, one of the great ways to do it. But, um, but yeah, it is, I mean, a partner is, can be, just seems so attractive in, in so many ways, but mm -hmm. you know, just sharing the same vision and being willing to, you know, kind of stay in your lane, uh, you know, if your area of expertise is a certain thing, mm -hmm. I, I tend to see a lot of people stepping on each other's toes when there is a partnership that tends to be where they fall apart is where people have an opinion and they're not willing to give. So anyway, well, and I, yeah, I've, I've totally seen that too. And I've actually talked with people who are like weary about seeking out a co-designer for those very reasons. I think we're blessed because Zach and I have known each other for over a decade and a half. 
And so, you know, we've, we've had those disagreements or we've had that kind of development in our friendship. And so it just kind of carried over into this aspect. I will say both him and I were like a little weird or nervous rather whenever we were discussing like, are we actually going to do this thing? Because, you know, we were concerned about our friendship because we heard those horror stories and um, we just kind of made some decisions and said, look, this is where um, we're going to kind of draw the line and, you know, the game isn't going to be more important than X, Y, and Z. Establishing that early on was pretty big. One thing I forgot to mention as well, because uh, you brought this up, is you know it took you six years, and you weren't. It wasn't like you were designing the game the whole time. You you were learning how to run the business, learning how to get this content out there to make a good game. You're trying other games, and you had to also foot the bill for lots of stuff. And so one of the benefits of Zach and I is that we could divide and conquer and kind of learn some of the inner workings of this kind of industry from, you know, listening to this podcast, talking with um, the people at Board Game Design Lab, Jamie Stegmeyer's blog um, has great, a lot of great stuff. And so we were able to kind of, you know, seek out this information, figure it out, and then be like, okay, how do we want to take this learn from their experiences, successes and failures and move forward. But the other thing that came to mind when you mentioned your your example for deliverance was that we had four incomes that we could help put into this this game because I'm I'm married, Zach's married, all four of us work, and so that helps a lot whenever we can go ahead and split it up that way versus all on one person. There's a reason why when you look at the end of a, a feature film or a you know, a video game, you have this, these credits, there's all these mm. people who've been involved in this company, uh, involved in the production of something. And I was listening to a talk by Amy Henning, and she is a sort of a senior member of Naughty Dog, a AAA game studio. She's, I don't think she's since left, but she was just talking about her time in, in the studio and how she kind of evolved through the company. And she eventually became like sort of a managing role and overseeing lots of teams. And she was just talking about how, how do you lead people, lead teams and get things done. And she was speaking of trying to think objectively about problems. So she gave an example of like surgeons, you know, if you have a, someone on the operating table, it's your people's feelings around how to do things isn't very important when it's right. so urgent and, and trying to think in terms of let's do what's best for the project and have that sort of mentality really helps move the project along where people can, and not take things so personally, if there's disagreements or changes, if, it, if the goal is the same, we have the same goal, which is to help this person or to make a great game, then we should be able to come to some type of agreement and yeah. try to think a little bit more objectively than be it, you know, I want my way or the highway. So I, th mm -hmm. that, I thought that was a very interesting insight. No, absolutely. And so we actually started with um, three partners, myself, Zach, and a guy named Eric. And we kind of cast the vision of what we were thinking um, kind of try to set expectations because we didn't know or we like how hard can it be to make a board game you know um, and so uh, part of that process was we wanted to protect ourselves and so in making an LLC we had to do a partnership agreement where we kind of lined out you know these, these legal documents and I think that is something people need to consider um, whenever they're going into a co-design relationship is it is a business you know there are documents that need to be had um, and if people are of the mindset of Hey, you know what? We're all friends. Nothing bad's going to happen. Um, it, it's it's just best to protect yourselves um, and the company and the interest of the company. And so we have those documents available. That's something that people need to account for as well. Like what you were saying, if you know if disagreements come up, how do you handle that? And they can be small decisions, like for a character, and maybe you guys just have a voting system, or 
just, you know, you know what, let's just go this way. But if it comes down to, you know, like moving money or, or trying to make financial decisions, you know, you need to have some sort of structure you've all agreed on to um, lean into. It probably comes a bit easier once you have a fan base as well, because if you have a disagreement between yourselves, we then say, well, let's see what, <laughs> let's see what the community says. And you can just send yeah. them an email and then they you say, yeah, you see, they're with me. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not going to lie. I've pulled that one a couple of times. Um, <laughs> I, we, we were trying to desi- decide uh, it was some aesthetics for a character. And I was like, you know, what? I, I think it'd be great if we just leaned into the community. And I was like, what do you guys think? And luckily they voted for what I was going for. And I was like, hey, the people have spoken. Let's uh, let's move forward this way. <laughs> so then let's pivot into this discussion about, you know, kind of where Mantle of the Keeper is at. I'd love to just kind of hear some of where your head is at being about, you know, a few days into the campaign, 85% funded or so what you're doing to get all the way funded and what your plans are, what your conversations have been like and that sort of thing. Let's, let's start there. So yeah, I can give some insight. Like we are literally in the middle of the campaign at the time of this recording. And so I think I can give some insight from the mental aspect of like what's going on in our head versus, you know, leading into what we're going to be doing actively each, each and every day to help cross the finish line. So Right now, last I checked before the recording, we were at 89%, uh, re- reaching into 90 pretty soon. And, um, you know, that's first off, that's fantastic. That's that's over 200 people that have raised their hand and said, yes, we believe in you. This is awesome. That's comprised of people from our email list, board gamers, friends, family. And so we do not take that for granted. That's incredible. Um but on the other hand, it's also kind of hard to work through that mentally, separate yourself from, hey, emotional kind of attachment to this project, or if you want to call it, you know, your baby that you've been working on and transition into a mindset of, okay, what can we be doing? I think from the mental side, that was really helped by actually listening to your guys's episode about the four different possibilities. We've listened to the episode several times and had company discussions about we need to have plans for each and every one of these. And we did. We went into it prepared. Um, obviously, the, the way that we're in this now, being two weeks in and not quite yet funded, that's not the one we hoped for. But we did have a plan for it, and that's the plan we're walking through. So separating ourselves from that disappointment and getting into action mode, some of the things that we have done is we planned daily posts um, on certain social media that we have on our Instagram and Facebook. But we did it so in a way that it wouldn't be spammy. And so we wanted to give people you know, that notification reminder, hey, we're still here. We still have the campaign going. But the way that we're doing that is saying, hey, here's a look at why did we choose Kickstarter? Or here's a look behind the scenes of the progression of making the miniatures, things like that, just to give people kind of a inside scoop of the final to see what the final product is on Kickstarter, but also seeing the process and questions we've gotten throughout the development into these forms of posts. So Engagement there, as well as lots of uh, organic engagement on different Facebook groups. So we're in several of the bigger ones and have had a pretty strong presence. And so engaging with people there, whether it's, you know, leveraging the posts that say, hey, what are you working on? And we can throw it in there. But other ways that we've been doing it is asking questions of like, hey, you know, how would you like to receive content from board game creators, you know, X, Y, or Z, and having that discussion with people to figure out what's effective. So there's been a lot of organic. Um, There's also been leveraging of our local communities. 
So again, again, one of the benefits of co-designing is Zach is back in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is where I'm from. And so he's able to, uh, he's built relationships with um, board game cafes there, board game stores, several groups and stuff like actually in Tulsa. Same with myself here in, in Frisco, Texas. And so being able to lean into them and be like, hey, you know, we reached out to some local papers and, you know, some groups that are on Facebook and said, hey, these two alumni have done this and kind of been stirring people up that way. Additionally, we're also still running some ads and leaning into cross communication. We've, we've partaken in some uh, articles. Some people have written blogs who have played the game or done articles on websites, as well as um, stuff like what we're doing right now of talking about our experience uh, while it's fresh with you guys. And Zach, actually, the reason he couldn't be here is because he was in another podcast, like doing the same thing. So mm-hmm. we, uh, we're trying to get our voice out as wide as we can right now. Yeah. And then in terms of things that you've done during the, the campaign, is there anything that's sort of stuck out as moving the needle the most? One thing I did forget to mention was um, some giveaways we've done. We had one uh, leading up to the campaign to kind of boost the page follows. And then now we're actually doing one mid-campaign. So the one that was leading up to had to deal with giving away a free deluxe copy once we fund. That was pretty popular. That that got a lot of interaction and stirred lots of questions and stuff. Right now, the one we're doing is kind of a more limited edition style to it. it we're giving away a, a prototype, one of the prototypes that we used as well as some um, like framed artwork from our, our artist. And so that's, that's moved the needle quite a bit because um, part of it, part of the entry includes having people tag their friends and that, that like board games. And so we've seen some moving there. But other than that, honestly, one-on-one reaching out to people that we, we know have been following us and have had shown interest in the past reaching out to them personally has also really moved the needle for us. I think that that's a really really important point is moving, you know, I guess reaching out to your personal network is not, not only is it something that you can do that can produce results, but it's something that you can do that produces higher end results Mm -hmm. versus, you know, I mean, people that you reach out to in your community or that know you oftentimes are looking to simply support you. And so many people do have a, a support network that you know, would be happy to help in, you know, you know, your kind of your moment of, of need. Right. And Mm -hmm. what I found with uh, when, you know, when I went live with deliverance is that, you know, and, and, you know, now managing probably, you know, probably just under a hundred campaigns, I guess, I don't know, some, something like that. I find that anybody that leverages their personal network those people aren't necessarily super concerned about the price or the components that they're getting. They're most concerned with how can I best support you? Even people that never played board games in their life and had no intent, they're like, yeah, I'd love to help. And, you know, for me, I've, I've got like some, you know, I had some higher tier pledge levels and you also have uh, some higher tier pledge levels that are more, you know, have a lot of vanity and uh, cosmetic things Mm -hmm. um, attached to them. Uh, They, there are a lot of people in your personal network that are probably the uh, legendary keeper pledge buyers, yeah. right? That $250 pledge. Yeah, um, absolutely. All 10 are sold out. All 10 sold out. Technically in the first day, we, we had this thing happen where um, one of the people in our personal groups uh, got excited and, and 
he tried to get two so he get one for his wife but she wanted to have the credit on her kickstarter so they had to like <laughs> switch real quick um but yeah those sold out in the first 48 hours um mm. which was really surprising for us we had planned for that to be um you know as like it would be roughly 2500 bucks which was a good chunk of our goal and that definitely helped with the boost um but you're absolutely right almost every single one was in our personal network my number one tip super valuable tip i'll be charging for this after this podcast is make 12 of those like you can add two more and so your your most hardcore fans this is a great opportunity to get one or two more of those sold and because you're only i mean really under two thousand dollars from funding every one of those you gain is going to be a big chunk i started with seven Archangel investor pledges mm-hmm. that were $1,500, very, very expensive, like $1,489. And I couldn't increase those. It was just a lot of stuff and very limited in quantity. Mm-hmm. They sold out the first day. And then I also had the angel investor pledge that was basically the the pledge where it was a lot more realistic for people that really wanted to support. We did painted miniatures in, in that pledge. It's basically all in with painted miniatures and credit as an angel investor in our rule book and on our website. And I started out at seven and those sold out immediately. So I increased to 14, those sold out immediately. I increased Mm -hmm. to 20 and those sold out immediately. And I increased to 24 and it took a few days to sell out. Then we increased to 30 and it, it, you know, we finally got about, I think it was like 31 of those, but that was like, we're pretty significant. So I, I would say that, you probably will have fans that would jump in at that 250 pledge. You know, I never thought about that. So you, you have me uh, having, having some thoughts going on. <laughs> like yeah. yeah. It's to fund. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And, and that's, that's all part of the key. Um, so I'll give you some insight to some conversations that Zach and I've had. Uh, you know, we're just like, you know, we're trying to work back in our head of, you know, what we could have done better, what we did right. Um, just as we're moving forward, cause you know, we, we have more projects that we want to be doing. So we're taking notes, um, only so much you can learn from others. So we're learning a lot from our experience. I think that was one of the things that shocked us was those legendary keeper pledges because you and I, Andrew had a conversation about like, Hey, you really want to sell these things before you go live, you know, just to avoid like having nine out of 10 left the whole campaign. And so we gauged that interest and the interest was strong. So like, okay, well, we'll do 10 of these guys. Well, like we underestimated that. And so what you said about your personal network really holds true. I had some people text me afterwards that was like, man, I, I just missed the legendary keeper, you know? So, um, that uh that's interesting that you bring that up it's something that i i find a lot of people are willing to do and also some people you have no idea will will do it so Mm -hmm. you know for for, i i'm always worried when a client comes and says i want to do a big pledge we had uh you guys do this 250 dollar pledge we had um elijah marar with the flood Mm -hmm. uh do a, a big pledge and i'm always concerned because it just looks bad if it doesn't sell out. Yeah, yeah, it does. You know, originally we but, had five, and then we were talking to one of our most hardcore play testers, and he goes, "Man, do 10. And we were like, "Okay." It's so like it's his. It's all because of him that we actually bumped it from five to ten. Yeah, I, I think that's fantastic. And then if it all sells out, yeah, I mean there might be a couple more, mm-hmm. maybe increase to. I, I don't want to increase too many. I mean, if you went to fifteen, that right. means you got five left. It starts to look, uh, you know, really, I guess the 
concept you don't want to avoid is that fear of missing out. Right. So, you know, change it to 12. And when you sell one or two, then change it to 13 or 14, you know, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I think that that's fantastic. Uh, Yeah. Great. One thing I noticed with, within your Facebook group is you had done a very good job of creating goodwill among the board game design community. I know that some of the very first people to congratulate you on the post I could see majority of them were other board game developers. Mm -hmm. So, and I noticed that you've obviously been very active in the crowdfunding nodes community and giving, you know, feedback to other people's projects. And I think that that has paid dividend. People are, have very affectionate emotions about your project and you and Zach. And Mm -hmm. I think it's shown and you clearly have a very passionate group of people. Uh, which, which is reflected in this higher pledge level mm-hmm. that I don't think would have been possible unless you had put in the effort to build those relationships and give to the community. And I think people just want to support you because they feel supported by you. Yeah. Um, well, appreciate you saying that, that, that is very much, you know, it's fruits of our labor for sure, but they weren't the intention, right? I th- so back when I was on before with Devin, we talked about kind of community engagement and adding value to people. Um, the reason Zach and I did that, A, was to learn, but also, you know, we did want to grow our network and we wanted to, you know, we, we love what we're building. We want to share it with people, but there's just genuinely so many great people that are in this industry that are, you know, doing what we're doing to try to make their dreams a reality. They're, you know, investing in others. And so we've just been inspired by other designers that you're mentioning. And honestly, like, they are so fun to hang out with on TTS and play their games and um, just have conversations about games. And so any shout outs? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I didn't know if that was cool or not. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, TK Edwards and Colton Thompson. Uh, we have Jack Dunbar, Brad Hiscock, uh, Wes Woodbury. Man, those are the first ones that come to mind. Um, Devin Metlin. Name the games as well so people can look them up. Oh, good point. Um, so Galactic Cruise is a worker placement game done by TK Edwards and Colton Thompson. This is a test. Yeah, yeah, there you <laughs> go. Jack Dunbar, um, he's doing gar- uh, New Kingdom Gardeners, which is a really cool kind of cooperative, but not cooperative building game where you're harvesting fruit and there's lots of good story behind it. Brad, his, he's doing Feuds and Favors, which um, he went to Kickstarter. Uh, and we had talked with him beforehand. The Kickstarter reached 75% before he had, he had to cancel it. And he found out that, you know, oh, I actually do have to invest into these groups and into building an audience with an email list. He did 75% without that. So he's planning a relaunch. Who else did I say? Wes. I mean, Wes is a machine. Uh, he, he I have a couple runs, of his games on my shelf. So do I. So do I. I actually have one right in front of me, Die in the Dungeon. If people are listening, after you check out Mantle the Keeper, check out uh, his Roll and Die, or Roller Die on Kick kickstarter right now but yeah back 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 to what the point of it is is like there's so many people out there who have experiences and knowledge that we don't and so being able to learn from them being able to offer input that interaction i feel like just makes you better at what you're trying to do which is in this instance make a good game we really invested into those relationships and yes they they did show up and they were some of our best backers but also Going beyond that, they reach out to us almost every day like, hey, how you doing? Like, what can we do to help? That's hard to find, but very appreciated when you're dealing with waking up and seeing like how much did the needle move? You know, that's been great. As far as the number of backers that you receive and cancellations and that sort of thing, do you have cancellations and is that does that weigh on you? Or are you like, what are you doing as far as, you know, to kind of survive 
through that and mentally? That is a fantastic question. Yes, we have cancellations. You guys have said before that Kickstarter is very gamified at this point. Um, so having it be 100% funded is really attractive to people. Not reaching that quite yet has been probably our biggest hurdle to overcome to prove to people it's a good product. So some people have pledged and canceled. Some of, I would say 65 to 70% of them are dollar pledges. The rest were our deluxe edition, so 65 bucks. So I think the, the wear on that definitely has been mentally because uh, we... Like, man, we're out here fighting daily just to get one one more right now, you know, just keep pushing the needle. And so every time that knocks us down, we're like, golly, this is a roller coaster of emotions, <laughs> which, you know what, that's expected. That happens to every project. People have things that come up. And so we don't, you know, we're not here or against them. Um, it's what they need to do. But um, what we have done to try to combat that, this was Zach's idea after he had um, actually revisited a, a post by Jamie about what you can do while your campaign's live. And what we have done is gone through and messaged each and every single one of our backers individually with a, a similar core message, but we've tailored each one to be for that person. And so we're just saying, hey, thank you so much. You know, we appreciate your support and, and this wouldn't be possible without you is the summary of it. Because it's true. Every single one of them has helped move it up to where it's at right now of 89%. And so what we're hoping is that they feel like, hey, I'm not just backer 83. Uh, he knows my name. He reached out and is thanking me and is appreciative. And so we hope that that goes a long way with them. That's awesome. I think that it's a big deal to value the people that invest into you, I think, are extremely important. Now, how are you leveraging your email list? Because, you mm. know, we got to uh, work with you before you launched and, you know, we helped build your email list and that sort of thing. And you had some pretty phenomenal open rates yeah. on email, email list. You're yeah. averaging about 40%. Right around there. Yeah. And yeah. the click through for um, the people who consistently opened was around uh, between five and 8% click through for any links we had in there. So I'm, I'm curious as to kind of how, what, what your thoughts are as far as how that worked out for you and what you would, you know, what you would change if anything, as far as your emails and what you... How we're leveraging it. Yeah, exactly. So when we worked with you guys, I think we started roughly around 100 emails, somewhere around in that ballpark. Before we launched, we were up to 945. So dramatic change. And like uh, Sean said, those were people who opened the emails too. Um, we actually ran some tests uh, on a meeting we did and almost every single person had opened an email from us, whether it was the mm -hmm. welcome or something else. So that's great. I will say that the email list has been tricky because for a couple of reasons, we realized, you know, once we started into this, at first we were thinking, hey, fantasy, let's slightly lean into some tropes while doing our own thing and people will be appealed, you know, they'll appeal to that, which is true, but there's also 10,000 other things out there that are targeting those people. And so mm. we had talked about the competition to get our ads in front of them and make sure that if they're in front of them, they're um, competitive and compelling. And so we did build up a strong base of people because every email we got was someone who had actually interacted with us at, at least at once. So what we've been doing with that is whenever we launched, we were sure to send out that email in the first two minutes of hitting launch. Got a pretty good open rate on that, like 10% click through. And so we did that and then waited the next day to resend to the people who didn't open. And so those both times converted and helped us. But there was a significant portion that for whatever reason, you know, leading up to the campaign and the launch had been opening 
And for whatever reason, when it, the time came, um, it kind of just declined on who was opening. And so we still had a very good amount and those people have done well. But what we've started to do now is send out two different emails to those two different filtered groups. And so we have a section for people who open, people who don't open. And so we've been able to leverage our message and how that's coming across and you know how long or short the message is and what it entails, depending on the group that it's going to. So that's actually been successful. Zach is running that and he's done phenomenal. The ones that have been going to our openers have a 60% open rate right now. Um, wow. which is really good. The ones that go to our non-openers, I, I just looked recently, it was still decent, but you know, people had started still in that category of not opening, but we have 8.7% opens for them and still 1.2% clicks. So it's valuable, but it, it didn't really perform the way we had quite expected leading up to it. It's interesting because, you know, first of all, I think that's a smart way to segment your email list, you open up to, or you, you split into your openers and your non-openers. The openers are the people that will open. And I feel that you can convince to jump on board. Mm -hmm. The non-openers are generally the people who have maybe decided they're not interested, possibly gave you a bad email address because they were never interested. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was their spam email address because they wanted to check it out and then eventually disqualified themselves or maybe forgot about it, that right. sort of thing. But the people who open from that list get transferred into the openers mm -hmm. segment, right? Now, I like that you've done that and people are opening and clearly paying attention. Mm -hmm. What do you think would cause them to jump on board? What do you think is keeping some of the people are on the fence, right? Mm -hmm. That, that are exactly. opening those emails. Right. What are, what's keeping them on the fence? I think a couple of things. First off, when, when reaching out to them, what the email is entailing is kind of where we're at actively. Just, you know, if you've opened it, you're at least interested in what we're doing. And so we're giving you an update. You know, here's a reminder of where the Kickstarter link is. And also, hey, we're doing a giveaway, stuff like that. We've had some people reach out to us from the emails or from our Facebook groups that have said, hey, you know, I just, you know, all of a sudden had surgery or doctor visit or whatever. And I wasn't planning for that. And so there's life events that happen. We have some people who from the get-go are saying, I'll be able to back on the first because that's payday. And so there's some of those where I think there's a small delay, but that is not everyone on the list. Um, I think, you know, after talking with a couple of people who had reached out after the first 48 that we hadn't funded, they reached out and we had some conversations. One of the things I didn't quite plan for, we had totally blanked first off that it was Amazon Prime Day <laughs> for the first two days, which... I don't think that plays a huge role, but definitely that's going to get some attention. The other part was we launched when four other anticipated campaigns had launched. And so we've had people say, hey, been following you guys, but right now I'm prioritizing this. And so best of luck to you. Maybe I can hit you at the end. I guess those are the big things we've heard so far. Yeah, I do think that it's important to look at other campaigns that are going to be launching and that sort of thing. It's tough because as a newer creator, you are going to be competing with people who are very well established and maybe at similar price points to you. Mm -hmm. I, exper I certainly experienced that with uh, my campaign when I launched. And I find it's really difficult to figure out when those campaigns are going to launch. Mm -hmm. I tend to just say, look, there's always going to be a campaign like that. It's right. going to be magic miracle if... I launch and don't 
have any competitor like that on Kickstarter. So I just have to launch and expect that my people that I've worked on will carry me through and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. I think that you have a lot of competition and that there's, I mean, you know, the whole inflation thing, you know, maybe people are pinching their pennies a little bit more than, than before. Not mm-hmm. quite sure about that. Uh, it could be that that's a non-factor. For my part, when we were putting the ads together, Sean and Jake or Jacob uh, in our company were, you know, did, did a lot of the work and I looked at them from time to time and uh, I found, you know, it just in general, it was tough for me to kind of instantly understand what the, where the innovation was, what the thing was that I haven't done before. Eventually what I decided personally for me, I decided that it was like an easy entry skirmish game where a lot of them are like really chunky, you know, um, with a lot of setup time and components and that kind of thing. It's, you know, I love games like that. So it just really, really appeals to me. And I love, basically it's, it reminds me of like magic, the gathering with some skirmish going on. Mm -hmm. And, um, I like that tactical combat with clever card play. So it's just, for me, it's a fresh take on that, but it's really hard to explain that in an ad where it's, you need to get that quote on the Kickstarter page. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Creator of deliverance says, no, yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, but, um, I kind of felt like it did innovate in a kind of combined existing things in a new way that was fresh and you know it's not the type of skirmish that's going to take four hours right yeah that's and that's that's one of the biggest draws and that's what we lean into and honestly what a lot of our playtesters and reviewers had come back saying is you know our goal from the get-go we wanted to make this approachable you know we were inspired by a couple of games but some of those, you know, had flaws that we saw to, to reach a certain type of, of, of gamer. And so um, we were shooting for easy setup and teardown and really low entry point, mm-hmm. but still having an epic experience. So you can learn this game on your first play, but also if you're coming back for your 10th play, there's depth and strategy and some combos you can do with characters that, you know, will you can sink your teeth into and really kind of dive into that aspect. Yeah, I, I tend to find that... It sounds really interesting, but where I run into a problem, like as a marketer, it's whenever you say something that is easy to disagree with, the Mm -hmm. person that is reading the ad is like, I don't know you, I don't think you're telling the truth, or I think you're just making this up. And that's one of the challenges that I feel like we had to deal with in relation to your game, where it wasn't like get a foot tall miniature or whatever. It's like, well, <laughs> yeah. there's something that's very interesting or right. innovative. Exactly. You know, and, and so there are, and then, you know, I guess in some capacity, the fantasy theme, it's also tough to make a case for being innovative there too. Yep. Even if the story is interesting and other things like that, I, I find some challenge there where you, you actually have some really great art but then when we put ads together, it's it's like struggling or rather it's the, the challenge is to make it look different enough to uh, to somebody that they're like, I don't think I have something like this on my shelf yet. Right. So those are some of the challenges that I that I kind of experienced from from our end. And, uh, you know, one one other thought I had and this wouldn't be like a massive difference maker, but you guys currently have your Price is set at, I'll say, like ending in the number five. Mm-hmm. So the base game ends at 
is $45 or more. The deluxe game is 65. Well, you know, that's what Kickstarter says, but it's $45 for the base game, Mm -hmm. $65 for the deluxe game. And, you know, my thought was, I tend to find that when people end in a five, like when it's US 45 or $65, that it could have been 69. And I don't think you would have lost anybody. Mm -hmm. And maybe potentially you could have, instead of 65, you could have gone 69 and then dropped your estimated deluxe pledge shipping to eleven dollars mm-hmm. or something like that we definitely um, thought about that um because there was yeah there, there was a i'd say a solid week of discussions um, amongst ourselves and other people about you know these price points because the the 45 dollars is cutting the msrp um, but also what we had to take into account was perceived value and you know we're also going for a lighter lighter weight market of people who are, you know, whether they're just getting into board games and they're used to twenty dollars Monopoly, or people who just generally prefer lighter weight games and the prices that they have, we had to take them into account. And so, part of our exercise was Zach and I had set the prices in our mind of what we thought would be palatable to the audience, given you know whether it's the economy or, or other um, games that were going to be alive in this time. Um, and so we had that exercise with ourselves and we came close to the numbers that you mentioned, the 49 and, and 69. But what we also did was we pulled about 15 to 20 of our playtesters and also other designers and publishers that we had developed relationships with. Some of them hadn't played the game before. Some of them had played a ton. Others had played maybe once or twice. And so what our, our, our exercise was, was we sent them the rendering from David Diaz from Mesa and said, hey, um, you know, this package right here that you're seeing all the components laid out, you can see the relative size of everything. If you saw this on Kickstarter right now, how much would you expect to be paying for this? And so um, sometimes they'd ask questions, other times they would just throw a number, but we actually saw a much lower range than what we were expecting. We saw anywhere from 30 to $50. And so um, given that, we, we realized you know, we could make this 49 and 59 and still be under MSRP, but that's not what's perceived. And so what our worry was, was we didn't want to throw a product out there that did have the material value and, and you know, the, the value of gameplay and level of gameplay, but have people be turned away by the price. And so setting those price points was done based off of some feedback that we'd gotten from others, as well as you know, balancing our manufacturing to see, you know, what is possible. And that makes sense. And, you know, one thing in regard to that, the image maybe is kind of a thought that I had is that the deluxe pledge 3D render that you were talking about, it's like, Mm -hmm. it's at the very top of your Kickstarter story. And when I look at it, I'm counting the number of cards and I'm, I'm like, okay, it's got like 18 cards kind of showing uh, maybe like 20 cards showing and then it's got one two three four five six card decks Mm -hmm. and at first i actually thought that those card decks were just cards so i thought okay it's got like 30 cards or 25 cards or something like that and it might have been to your advantage to make it look i I guess like exaggerate the look of that image Mm -hmm. so that it looks more like more substantial because you get you know, whatever it is, 120 cards in the game, right. or 125, I think. It's So and, yeah, it's 20 cards per 
each of the characters, there's six characters and you have some supporting cards. Yeah. So I thought, you know, that might be something, you know, it's just these images are, they tend to be so small Mm -hmm. that when people look at them, they kind of judge what they're seeing. And it's, it's real easy to kind of miss that there's a stack of cards because they're only 20 cards high, right? Right. In, in the 3D render. Yeah. So. Back, back to that perceived value thing. Um, mm-hmm. And, and yeah, that's, that's something that, you know, when we were working with, you know, developing these images, we wanted to make sure that there was a nice view of stuff. Um, but that's, that's a good point of being able to maybe position them differently or, have something be exaggerated or, or, you know, slightly out of scale or something like that. I guess the fear with that is, you know, you don't want to be kind of bait and switch where it looked like 50 or 60 cards. Um, mm-hmm. And then they look and like, wait, there's wait 120 in total or, you know, so man, it, it's, it's interesting because, you know, talking with you now, being able to have 2020 vision, like these are all decisions that, you know, we were actively talking through before. Cause you know, you don't know what's going to happen until you hit launch. Right. And so um, I think part of the blessing of going through this experience of as of right now, we aren't quite funded. We are so close, but we're not. But the beautiful thing is that Zach and I have had experiences that we couldn't prepare for that are going to help us for our next campaigns that we are planning. And so um, experience is the best teacher. Um, and, you know, we, we've learned from y'all, we've learned from others, but at a certain point, you know, we have to have some of our own experience. And so some of these things you're saying, you know, about the setting the prices or maybe the image, um, uh, you know, leveraging the emails in a slightly different way. Um, these are all fantastic ideas that Zach and I can take with us moving forward. Right. So is there anything else that you wanted to share or any other thoughts that you had before we would end our podcast? Uh, any advice you have for others? I think what I would want to share with people based off the experience that Zach and I are in a, right now of, you know, almost two weeks in and not quite past the finish line, we're annoyingly close, but not quite there, is you have to remember that this project needs to be treated like a business and it has to be treated. You do care about your game. You do care about the stuff you've poured, you know, in our case, thousands of hours into, but it is not a self-reflection, right? It's, it's, you know, there's tons of factors out there. There's absolutely things that you can do to prepare and things you should do to prepare. You know, crowdfunding nerds always talks about building a community and that's absolutely necessary. Being able to build your community and do that well. The other bit of information I'd say is, it's okay to be a little bummed, but you really shouldn't stay in that because, you know, we are still alive, we're still fighting, and we are the biggest cheerleaders right now trying to move that ball forward. And so it's okay to be, you know, bummed about maybe a possible outcome, but in the reality of it, we have a live campaign that has a couple hundred backers of people who are fans of this. And so we uh, be thankful, you know, for everyone that is there to support and keep your energy up because people feed off of that. And so I think to sum it up is like everything that you'll go through, whether you fund in the first day or first eight minutes, like Andrew did, um, or maybe you're not quite there, you know, two weeks in is all this is a lesson that is super invaluable that no one can really quite articulate until you go through it. And so learn from it. Um, If you have a co-designer, cheer each other up and, you know, brainstorm awesome ways to engage your community. And, um, at the end of the day, it's, it's kind of going to be the fruit of your efforts and what happens happens, but there's always a next step that you can take. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for that advice. And thanks for joining us on our podcast. I guess Richard is not here. However, <laughs> I think I can conjure up some magic and 
change my voice to his. So we'll have me send us out sounding like Richard. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.